Welcome to Village Church of Gurney Podcast. This week, we continue on in our series, God, Our Light and Life. The name of the sermon is called God's Love or Our Love. Pastor David will be preaching from 1 John 4, 7 through 12. Let's join Pastor David now. Well, please, please do meet me in 1 John. We are navigating through this New Testament letter of 1 John. Today we'll be uh, in verses 7, 1 John chapter 4, excuse me, verses 7 through 12. 1 John 4, 7 through 12. Hear what God's word says to us this morning. 1 John 4, starting in verse 7. It says, Beloved, loved ones, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. And in this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Verse 11, beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. And if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Amen and amen we come again in this passage to a portion of Scripture that calls us, uh, commands us, uh, yearns for us, shows us, calls us to love, love one another. And as we go through the, this letter, 1 John, we start to see uh, this letter is some ways cyclical, that this isn't the first time we've seen this topic and almost like a, um, like a spiral getting deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper into this topic. So is John drilling deeper and deeper and deeper into the depths of what it means to love one another. And very often, as we have said before and even wrestled before, some of the simplest, easiest commands to understand can be very, very hard to do. Love one another. <laughs> and as we look at this command to love, I think we do have to ask the question, um, why? We have to get to the heart of the motive. Why do we love one another? Why is God calling us to love one another? Because if we, if we try to love out of the wrong motive, we're going to be burning on poor fuel, like putting salt in a, a gas tank. We've got to burn with the right motive in this journey, in this call of loving one another. So why? why? Why do we love one another? Why does God call us to love one another? Do we love one another because it's easy? And if that was the case, if the only motive was, yes, Lord, I will love others because it's so easy to love others, we all know very, very quickly how hard it's going to be. Well, what about the times when it's not easy to love others? Uh, do we love others because um, it's practical? And if that is our motive, then, then what do we do in the times when, 
we are called to love others or we're presented an opportunity to love others, and, and it's not practical. It might be costly. It might take your time or energy. It might blow up your calendar for the week. Do we love others because it's um, self-serving? That perhaps in loving someone else and caring for someone else, there's this subtle motivation of our hearts that says, well, I mean, if I scratch their back, maybe they're going to scratch my back. But is that really love? If we only loved others because in some way we knew it, maybe it might, maybe it might help my networks. Uh, maybe it might, um, uh, by proximity, maybe my popularity will rise or fall if I'm close to this or that person by loving them. And certainly we all can fill in the blank uh, times in our lives where we've been called or we've been presented the opportunity to love someone that there's really going to be no, no perceived way that it's going to benefit or help us. And if our motive to love others is because it might be beneficial to us, then we all know we're going to run into some serious problems for the many times when loving others means there's going to be no perceived help or benefit to us. So why? Why do we love? Because I think it is important, the motive behind our love, even, even the righteous and good things that we do as believers, if it's done with the wrong motive, we will burn ourselves out. We'll be running on poor fuel. We'll wear out. We'll exhaust ourselves, and we won't be able to see it through. So why? Why do we love one another? This portion of Scripture calls us love because God is love. That we love others, friends, family, even enemies, even those we disagree with. We love others. Why? Because it's easy? No. Because it's practical? No. Because it might be self-serving? No. We love because God is love. It's rooted in his character. Love comes from him. He designed it. That God, Father, Son, and Spirit, three persons, one nature, existed before existence itself in a loving relationship. God himself. God is love. And that's why we love. Look at what it says. This is right out of uh, 1 John 4, verse 7 and 8. Look at this again. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. That it, This love that we have for one another, it reflects the relationship that we have with God the Father. We don't love to try to earn our relationship with Him. We love from our relationship with Him because we've been born of Him, like father, like child, so we love. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Verse 8, anyone who does not love does not know God. Here it is, because God is love. And if love comes from God, for, so says 1 John 4, 7, if God is love, if this is a primary attribute and, and, and character trait of God himself, and theologians wrestle, and I love this wrestle, whether it is, is God's attribute of love, is that, is that a sum of all of his other attributes combined, expressed in one, or is it one of many of his attributes on the facet, this complex, beautiful, like facets of a diamond 
as we spin it around and we see all of God's attributes. And that's, I mean, wherever you land in that conversation is a good place to land. Either way, we see God is love. And if it comes from him and if it's a part of his character, then God himself, our designer, our creator, our king, our master, he defines what love is and what love isn't. God reserves the right. He's, as any creator of, of a piece of wood, maybe, maybe a chair, the architect, the builder, reserves the right to, to, to let us know how this chair should or shouldn't be used, how it's designed. And if God has designed and love comes from him, he reserves the right to define what love and is and isn't. And we're going to spend a little bit of time on this because I think this is very important for this cultural moment in which we find ourselves living. Because it's no surprise, it's, it's, it's an open secret that uh, swirling in, in the world that we live in, uh, the movies we watch, the conversations we have, uh, uh, cultural strange in which love is or isn't defined. So it becomes really important that we as believers operate under the definition that God gives us. Because one of the predominant uh, uh, strains of, one of the predominant ways in which love is understood in the culture that we live today, that you live, that your children live, that your grandchildren live, has been shaped and defined by what social commentators call expressive individualism. Expressive individualism. If you've never heard that term before, the more we describe it, the more you're going to start to see it. It's kind of, I think, like um, the first time I stumbled onto this, some articles and, and good information about this cultural uh, dynamic that we are living in. It's kind of like describing water to a fish that you kind of can't see it until you do see it, then you can't not see it. Expressive individualism. Uh, very briefly, it's summed up, I, I could take a stab at summing it up in three different phrases. Find yourself, be yourself, express yourself. Expressive individualism. Find yourself, be yourself, and then express yourself. That the true journey of what it means to be a human is to go on this self-discovery, self-definition, and self-expression journey. And the path that we truly live, so says the culture, the path that we truly live as human beings, is the more we can do that, define, be, and express ourselves, is the more we live into what it truly means to be uh, a true human being. And under this cultural ideology, we start to see some, um, some of the ways that love is defined. According to expressive individualism, to love, as we see in our, our culture today, to love is to endorse and celebrate this journey of self-definition and self-expression. That's what it means to love, right? To endorse it and celebrate it. To hate would be the opposite. Any expression of blocking someone's journey of self-definition, of self-expression, would be considered hateful, isn't it? Have you, are you starting to see in culture and on social media and in film where this starts to pop up? And if that is love, according to culture, according to our world, find yourself, be yourself, express yourself, to endorse that and to celebrate that and to hate is, is in any way to, to block that or to slow that down or, or to question that journey of self-definition and self-expression, we start to see some other things uh, defined as our culture sees it. 
sin then becomes the greatest sin of our culture is the failure to be yourself. You've seen it in the films, haven't you? The main character in a moment of weakness, uh, perhaps in a moment of cowardice, doesn't live into the identity that they are. That's the failure to be yourself. That's the greatest sin of our culture today. Salvation, according to our culture today, expressive individualism, is, is to find yourself. That the moment that you ultimately find and discover who you are meant to be, that, that's the moment of actualization and self-transcendence, isn't it? That's the moment that we're finally, the character in the film, you know, finally breaks through and understands who they are. That's, that's what it means to be saved according to our world, according to culture. And if that's how sin is defined, the failure to be yourself, if that's how salvation is defined, defined, to find ourselves, then what it means to live into our identity is, again, to express ourselves, to express ourselves. And the true hero of our culture, the true heroes that are left, are those who go on this self-definition, self-discovery, self-expression journey, pushing aside any naysayers that come their way, no matter where the naysayers come from. It's, it's the new Lone Ranger. It's the one who, who marches out. And, and all those who, who say they shouldn't be who they are, all those who, who block them in this journey of self-definition and self-expression and self-discovery, right? They, you push over them. You press aside. And the true hero is the one who does that no matter where the opposition comes from, family, friends, that's what a hero is. Now, as I'm even describing, again, expressive individualism, this idea that's floating around in our culture, how many, how many movies filled your mind? <laughs> how many moments have you seen this, perhaps on social media or perhaps in the conversations that you've had with, with family or friends? Find yourself, be yourself, express yourself. One of the places that I saw it that you might remember when Thor has gone back in time to Asgard. Are you with me? Avengers Endgame. Remember the scene? Thor, the god of thunder, with all of his might and his hammer, but he's failed. He hasn't destroyed, you know, Thanos Death itself, the arch enemy, and he's all depressed and discouraged. Remember, Thor goes kind of through a rough patch of his life, a lot of video games, a lot of pizza. He goes back in time, and he bumps into his mom. Remember the scene? And his mom provides him some encouragement and some comfort, and here's poor Thor all beating up on himself. Do you remember the dialogue? Some of you may have these memorized. I don't have it memorized, so I wrote it down. Thor goes back in time. He says to his mom, reflecting when he failed to kill Thanos, the arch enemy, he says, I was too late. I was just standing there, some idiot with an axe. His mom says, idiot? No. A failure? Absolutely. Thor says, that's a bit harsh, a little bit of humor there. Mom says, you know what that makes you, Thor? Just like everyone else. Thor says, but I'm not supposed to be like everyone else, am I? Here it is. You ready for this? His mom replies, everyone fails at who they're supposed to be, Thor. The measure of a person, of a hero, 
is how well they succeed at being who they are. Find yourself. Be yourself. The greatest sin of our culture, right? So says Thor's mom. Everyone, who, everyone fails at being who they're supposed to be, Thor. In biblical words, in religious terms, all fall short of God's glory. We all make mistakes. We all sin. We're all broken. But our culture says, everyone, everyone fails at who they're supposed to be, Thor. But the measure of a person, of a hero, is how well they succeed at being who they are. That's the true hero journey. It's, it's the last Lone Ranger hero metaphor in, uh, of, of this cultural moment that we find ourselves in. But here's the challenge. Here's the problem. And I'm talking to, to believers now. When you see uh, some of these ideologies coming through, whether through your, your children's education or social media or the films, Christians, don't get mad, but let your heart break. Why? Because this is one example in which the world, we're trying to save ourselves. By default, as human beings, we're trying to save ourselves. We're trying to atone for our own sins. We're trying to find salvation. We're trying to be who, we, who God has designed us to be. We're trying to save ourselves. So Christians, when this happens, don't get mad at this. Let your heart break for this. Because if we as human beings try to follow this journey of expressive individualism, we're going to run into some problems. We're going to run into, back ourselves into a corner where we're stuck on some things. And here's a list. Number one, love. Remember, if, our, if the culture says what it means to love is to endorse and celebrate others in this journey of self-definition and self-expression. Endorsement and celebration. But here's the challenge. Here's the problem. Here's where we get a little bit stuck. All of us understand that there are situations where love requires us to add constraints. That there is a form of loving other people where we have to step in, where we have to say no to certain things. Some examples. It is a good and loving and right thing. When we have a visit with our physician, they say, you know, here's a list of foods that I know that we love to eat. You can't eat them anymore. When the doctor says, man, you got to lay off the sugar, bro. Too much chocolates. This is getting convicting now. That's a good and loving and right thing to do. Do you see what they're doing? They're adding, he's adding a constraint on my life. That's an expression of love. Here's another example. Whether it's through um, a pastor in premarital counseling or a counselor to a married couple, what it means to be married, husband and wife, if we are going to commit ourselves to one another, do you know what that means? It's to forsake all others. That's a restraint. If I'm going to commit in a covenant relationship to my wife, Sally, that means I forsake all others. And what it means to love is... <laughs> is to add constraints to our life. That when sin creeps up in our hearts, that we say no to it, to, to, to vote ourselves to our spouse. Constraint. So if, if what it means to love is to endorse and celebrate, then we're going to get stuck because the, to love someone else is more complicated, it's more nuanced, it's more multifaceted than only endorsement and celebration, isn't it? There's moments where parents, you know this well, grandparents, you know this well. You set the bedtimes. 
You set the rules of the house. You set what your kids can and cannot do. And why are you doing that? Because you hate them? No, because you love them so much. You want to put, as another has used the term, the right restraints, the right constraints around our lives so that we grow into flourishing human beings. That's what it means. Those are facets of loving others. Sometimes it requires restraint. Here are some other problems that we find. If... If, according to the world, if sin, salvation, and identity are up to us to fix and to find and to maintain, if the great sin of our culture is the failure to be yourself, you know what the solution to that is? Get to work. Try harder. Atone for your own sins. You failed to live up to who you were supposed to be, then go ahead and try harder. Try again. If sin is ours to fix, if salvation is ours to found, if the great saving narrative of our culture today is to find yourself, find who you're supposed to be, do you know what the only hope that you have is to do that? Get to work. Try harder. Keep pushing. Keep searching. Keep finding. And if the only way that we are going to live into the identity according to our world is just by, by needing an endless barrage of, of affirmation from others to live into who we are. Do you know what that's going to, you know what that's going to leave us? Exhausted. Exhausted. And I'm not talking about the kind of exhaustion where we just need a nap or we just need a vacation. I'm talking about exhaustion of the soul. Because in, in biblical terms, we're, we're trying to save ourselves. The world is trying to save itself. And if the true hero narrative of our culture, of our time, is, is to go on this journey of self-definition and self-expression apart from everyone else, and if you've got to walk over all the naysayers to do it, you know what's going to happen? You are going to end up in an ice castle of your own making alone. It's a journey that doesn't lead us toward others, but away from others. Self-definition. self Discovery, self-expression. Do you see the center of this salvation? It's all up to you. It's all up to you. And you will be tired, and you will be alone, and you will be disillusioned. And we start to see very quickly the cry of a broken world that is desperately Christians. We know, what they're, what, we know what's happening. They're trying to save themselves. And we have an alternative and I just want to speak to you, if, if what I'm saying here today, if, if, if you're getting the sense of, oh my goodness, you're starting to read into my heart exactly what I've been struggling with. I'm exhausted. I do feel alone. I have been trying to build and construct my own identity. I have been trying to live into it. And if that is resonating at all with your heart and your soul as you're listening to this, can I encourage you? You need an alternative and the gospel offers an alternative. This is the great hope. Here it is. Look in the next uh, two verses. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. Verse 9. That God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That in this journey, 
If the world says what it means to love others is to endorse and celebrate, that leaves us exhausted, it leaves us lonely, it leaves us trying to atone for our own sins, trying to become our own saviors, the gospel offers us something completely different. A salvation and a hope that is not ours to achieve, but ours to receive by, by sheer and utter grace. That God shows love to us, and God's kind of love is not in self-discovery, self-definition, and self-expression, but self-sacrifice. Self-sacrifice for others. And we see the epitome of this in God sending his son. And don't miss the depth of what's happening when he says God sent his only son into the world. And that would be God sending his son to die on our behalf. This self-sacrifice, this ultimate self-sacrifice for us, for you, and for me. And if that's what love is, we start to see some of these problems that the world offers. We find solutions to them in such a way that, that, that it gives us true rest, true identity, true salvation in him. Look at how this unfolds. To describe it, uh, let me um, first bring out another Avengers illustration. Do you remember the scene same film. I know some of you are chuckling. We've all been through the same pandemic. I know you watched all the movies again. Remember the, one of the final scenes, spoiler alerts, Avengers Endgame? Remember Tony Stark? This character all throughout the films has been totally self-absorbed, self-obsessed. Everything, the universe kind of revolves around Iron Man, around Tony Stark. Do you remember the, there's a line in the very first film, Tony Stark reveals, he says, I am Iron Man. He reveals who he is to the snap of all these photographs, and it's all about him. He's the center of the universe. You go to the final film, Avengers Ed Game. Remember what he says? I am Iron Man. He snaps his fingers. He's got the infinity stones from the evil, you know, Thanos, and he saves the world. Let me ask you a question. Why was that scene so moving? Why was it when, when this scene where Tony Stark dies to save his friends, dies to, on behalf of the world, why was that so moving? And some of you perhaps saw that film in, in theaters. People were crying. People teared up at that moment. Why? Because perhaps without realizing, without knowing the depth of, of, of what that was communicating, the writers of that film tapped into a a gospel paradigm, a gospel pattern. Because we see, and obviously the illustration breaks down. You know where I'm about to go with this. No, Tony Stark is not Jesus. <laughs> but, but, we start to see echoes. We start to see glimpses of the true self-sacrifice. The one who did take on death on his own shoulders so that we might live. We do see God sending his son to save the world. That scene was so moving because it taps into the reality of what love is for you and I. God sending his son for us. And that means love, according to how God defines it, is not in endorsing self-discovery. It's in self-sacrifice for others. It's in self-sacrifice that God has given to us and us for others. Because Jesus is our propitiation. And that word means Wrath-absorbing substitute. God swaps places with us. He absorbs the wrath that God had designed for us that we might be set free in him. He swaps places. And then what that means is that we can 
rest. We can rest because sin is no longer yours to self-atone because Christ has atoned for it. Salvation is no longer yours to find because Christ offers it. Identity is no longer yours to maintain or achieve because Christ gives it freely by grace. Do you see how what the world offers as a way of salvation and as a way of love finds its, finds its better alternative in the gospel? That if you try to navigate this life living into this idea that I need to atone for my own sins, I need to find my own salvation, I need to maintain my own identity, you will be exhausted. The gospel offers you rest in forgiveness and salvation and identity that you do not need to work to achieve, but it's offered to you by sheer and utter and free grace. Come to me, all you who are weary and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. Rest for your souls, God says. This is what he offers you. This is what he offers me. We can rest. Number two, we can love. We can love because if all other motivations for love, if we only love because it's easy, if we only love because it's practical, if we only love because it might serve us, that's not going to work. We'll be exhausted. Or it's really not love. It's just kind of a way of, uh, a, a strange, selfish way of, of using others for us. God offers an alternative. Self-sacrifice for others. Love one another by self-sacrificing for others. And finally, this great alternative to the other hero narrative that we see because of the gospel that we don't need to define ourselves in opposition to others. That's going to leave us alone. We define ourselves in the identity that Christ has given to us by sheer and utter grace. And this journey of discipleship is no longer stepping over the naysayers and pushing them aside, defriending, canceling, mocking, yelling louder. But now we have an identity that when we live into it, we serve one another self-sacrificially. And when you start dying to yourself to serve those around you, you know what's going to happen? It's not going to push you down a path of loneliness, increased loneliness. It pushes you down a path of increased community. God's definition of love is one that pushes us closer and closer together, even when we love those we disagree with. Even, though, even when we love those the world says, hey, you're supposed to be enemies. The gospel gives us resources to lean in and love. And when we do that, we build a sense of community. We, we build a, an, an openness for others to enter in as we pour out our love for others. Friends, we love because God is love. How do we do that? Love as you've been loved. Love as God has loved you. In the same way that he loved us, so we turn and love one another. Look at the final two verses, 11 and 12. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. And if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Once again, we start to see if God so loved us. The argument is, believers, since he has loved us, those who are checking out Christianity, this love can be yours by faith. If God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. 
that our love for others is a reflection, it's a result, it's an outcome of God's love first for us, then we pour it out to others. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Since Christ has loved us self-sacrificially, we can turn and love others self-sacrificially. And I want to I challenge you as something that was filling my heart and mind this week. I want to challenge you, simply pray. Ask God, Lord, present an opportunity for me this week, this week, to love someone like you have loved me. Husbands, love your wives as Christ has loved the church. Parents, love your children as God the Father has loved you. Wives, love your husbands and families as the gospel shows us the pattern to do that in service and self-sacrifice. Friends, love each other as, as God, our good shepherd and ultimate friend, laid down his life for us. No greater love is this than one who lays down their life for his friends. Enemies. Those you disagree with those who think differently than you, uh, those who are going to land on different ideological um, points of the continuum, love them. That if we have a kind of love where we see, <laughs> don't miss the depth of God's love. God sent his, his son into the world, the world, and you start to look all throughout the Gospel of John and the letters of John, the world is, is humanity that has rejected God. The world is humanity that's rebelled against God. The world is humanity that's spat on God and, and crucified him. This is, this is you and I. This is who God has loved. He loved those who were enemies to him. By default, we are dead in our sins. We are enemies of God. Yet he loved us. Now God says, turn and do likewise. Love those around you. And if you pray that prayer, I, and I, I encourage, just try it. If you pray that prayer, Lord, give me an opportunity this week to love someone as you have loved me. You might be shocked to find how hard that's going to be. God might put in your path the person that presses all your buttons, hmm. that, that, that disagrees with you, that if you had any other choice, you would try to avoid them. And God says, love them, because it's how I have loved you. And friends, when we do that, when we do that, God's love is perfected in us. See this beautiful circle, this, this circuit that's completed in God's love for us and God's love for others. That if we're going to do this, the only way we can love others is if we soak long enough and hard enough in God's mercy, God's patience, God's forgiveness, God's grace toward us. And when that melts your heart, you're going to be able to look to others, even those who are hard to love, and you're going to be able to extend mercy, grace, patience, forgiveness, not because it comes from you, but because it comes from him through you. And it perfects his love. It completes the circuit. And I think this is what this passage is showing us and telling us and calling us to understand and see, and this is it in a sentence, love God by loving people, and when we love others, we point people to God. I think that's what this passage is saying, plain and simple. Love God by loving people, 
And when we do that, when we love others, we actually point people to God. We actually show the love of the invisible God through us. People start to see our Lord and Savior through us. Love God by loving people. And loving others is pointing people to God by his grace. Friends, let's do it. Let's pray. Father, we ask for a divine sense of enablement to do this very clear yet challenging command. Lord, you have called us to love. And Lord, you've supplied the Holy Spirit to enable us to do the very things that we could never do in our own strength. You've commanded us to love others as you have loved us. Father, we thank you that you have gone first. We thank you that you've not only modeled how to do that, but you've enabled us to do that. So, Father, this week, I pray for myself. I pray for all who can hear my voice that in the opportunities you provide for us, that we might see pockets and glimpses of your kingdom and your glory and your love for us. We pray this in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to Village Church of Gurney's podcast. If you would like to know more about Village Church, you can go to our Facebook page under Village Church of Gurney or go to www.bcgurney.org.